0: Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come this morning in need of you. We have made time and intention and arrived to be here. And my brothers and sisters, young and old, arrived because they want you to be with them and to teach them and want to know you. And so we sit before you and ask you to speak and to teach us. I pray that what we look at this morning would encourage and discipline and bring hope and remind them of just how close you are to them. May we leave with deeper strength and courage because we've gathered here and seen one another and known we're not alone. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, again, good morning. It is always a joy to be here. I am an old friend and an older friend, so it's always a joy to be with you guys. Um, I'll be with you the next three Sundays. To cover while Johnny's away so really glad to be here Um, and I want you to start this morning by having you think for a second on a story you like so much that you read it or watch it or go back to it again and again right so something that you're like I've read that book but I'll read it again so in our house Harry Potter gets read a lot or the Chronicles of Narnia get read a lot. Um, My couple people in my family this week watched the first Jack Reacher with Tom Cruise and I've actually, I like a scene in that movie. So my wife mentioned she'd watched it with one of my sons and I had never watched the whole thing because <laughs> she was describing it. I'm like, I actually, the scene I like, there's a scene in it where, how many of you ever seen this one with Jack Reacher? He's in Pittsburgh. Um, Tom Cruise is Jack Reacher. But he's, he's doing things in downtown Pittsburgh and the police are trying to find him. He's blowing up things and cars are on fire and he gets out of an on-fire car and goes to the side of the street and all these cops are coming and all these people at a bus stop sort of blend Tom in so he knows and the guy next to him calmly takes his hat off and hands it to him so Tom has a way to be in disguise right so I I've seen that scene like eight times over and over again even though I've never seen the whole movie but I like if I'm if I'm if it's on if I know it's coming I'll stop and watch it again because I just think it's so great the guy is so subtle about how he just takes this hat and hands it to Tom and just shakes his head like this on fire car goes down the street in Pittsburgh maybe there's stories you have that you know you like to hear again and again from more than one view so maybe you're you're If you're a kid here, you've asked your parents, how did you meet? And you get both stories, like the parallel accounts. Because you know the fuller story is with the parallel account, right? Or your grandma and grandpa, how did you meet? What's it been like? You get both stories. This summer, you have been in in a particular story all summer so far, right? Like Genesis. You looked at Genesis 1 and 2. And I was with you way back on June 5th for the first week. How many of you were here that week or remember that week? How many of you could, if I said... If we went around, we won't because of time, but I said, okay, of the eight weeks you've been in Genesis, you've been eight weeks so far, are there a couple things that have jumped out that you're like, oh, if if we sat around in small groups over coffee after this morning, you could say, here's something that's really struck me about Genesis 1 and 2. They're so rich and so important, you've spent a lot of weeks in them. I'll be with you this morning in Genesis Genesis 2, and then next week we'll actually move out of Genesis 2, and we'll start your trek through the rest of Genesis for this fall. Now, on June 5th, the first Sunday, I said a couple things that I'm gonna say again to remind you, sort of set some frame of context of what we are looking at. Again, Genesis is structured around, I don't expect you to remember this, but I'm I'm gonna pretend like I hope you do, around two particular calls, right? The first, the first 11 chapters is God calling the world into being, and the second call is Genesis 12 to 50, which he's not just called the world into being, but he's called a special covenant people to be his people and to witness, bear witness to who he is in the world. So Genesis 1 to 11, call of the world. Genesis 12 to 50, call of a particular people in that world. And this call is addressing this story, two major questions throughout. Who is God and who are, who are we? Really the fundamental questions of existence. What's it mean to be alive? Why am I here? Where am I going? That's what Genesis is unpacking. And you may remember I I set a frame for why Genesis was given to us, why it was put together in a part of the Bible by an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. This is what Brueggemann says, that Genesis is not an abstract statement about the origin of the universe. That wasn't its intent but rather it's a theological and pastoral statement addressed to a real historical problem. The goal of Genesis then is to find a ground for faith in this God, the God we read about in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and all the way to Genesis 50, when our experience seems to deny the very rule of this God. Genesis is a ground for faith in this God when our more immediate historical experience is against That faith. If you remember, that was the drum I beat a lot. What does your immediate historical experience say? And yet, what does Genesis say? Because the book has been given us to to invite our trust in this God. He can be trusted even when it feels like the world is full of chaos, which is how Genesis starts. The world's in chaos and God brings order. Now, this Quote and my getting to preach for you on June fifth has been a gift because I've had a chance to preach in several different churches in your diocese, diocese of the Mid Atlantic, and I've shared this paragraph again and again. And I've shared it with friends. I shared it with a friend in Vancouver who's going through a real deep time this week. It's sort of become my theme quote for the summer and my own life. So thank you to Johnny and to you all for having me here on the fifth because it became the frame of my summer, and you have given it to people around Maryland and Virginia and now Canada. Because you being in Genesis meant I found it, and we've been able to remind ourselves just why we're in this book. So when I I open that way, I I encourage you to think about the goal of your summer being growing in courage. That the goal of your series was that you'd exit the summer with deeper courage in this God that Genesis is inviting you to trust. I hope that is happening over the eight weeks. And as we finished Genesis 2 this morning. I hope it happens some more. So I just want to make a couple broad comments about Genesis 2 and then focus on four specific things this morning. First, broadly, Genesis 2 is a parallel account to Genesis 1. It's like hearing how your grandma and grandpa met and fell in love from grandma and grandpa. So Genesis 1 and 2 are not meant to be chronological accounts, but meant to be parallel accounts that we read side by side. In Genesis 1, we begin with God and God speaks, right? And in God's speech, he brings order and he brings creation and creativity, right? Remember he said he brings forms like sky and ocean and then he fills those forms with stars and fish. And then the ark, the pinnacle of Genesis 1 is the creation of man and woman and then the gift of rest, that's Genesis 1. God, God speaks. Genesis 2, we begin with? Come on, you're brave. We begin with? Where would you think we'd start again? Not chaos. Good guess that you with garden. And we'd be able to get with God. Oh, the first account began with God. This one begins with God. It starts, this is the account of the heavens and earth. God, and then we go off with God again. Here God speaks, but he also we find out he crafts. We're going to look more at that in a minute. And he doesn't just bring order and creativity, but he actually is bringing beauty. He creates a garden. And there's water in the garden, and there's plants in the garden. There's lushness and fertility in the garden. Then he commissions people to take care of the garden, bear his image in the garden, be sort of junior gardeners. and then it, But it finishes again with a pinnacle, creation of man, but also, if you've read Genesis 2 all the way through it, It finishes, he creates woman, right? Don't say sin. We want to rush to Genesis 3, throw bad. It'll be bad enough next week, I promise. But we're just standing in Genesis 2 this morning. It finishes with woman, and the verses about women are way more than the verses about men. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But they're parallel accounts. So think of those two chapters. So to understand the joy and the wonder of God creating God the creator, you need both chapters. In this new account, again, it begins with this introduction I mentioned a minute ago. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. That's called Toledot in the Hebrew. This is the account. And I'm just giving it to you now because you're going to be in Genesis through the fall. And you need to remember that statement. This is the account. Because it's going to be used now for things like this is the account of Noah, this is the account of Isaac, this is the account of Jacob. It's the way you describe someone's family line and that is actually how Genesis is organized. You're gonna find out the account of me would actually be the account of my children. But this is the account of the heavens, the earth. It's the first time we hear the phrase Toledot in this parallel account. Then in this parallel account, we're given new insight into understanding into where we humans have been placed. If you remember, Genesis 1 starts way out here, heavens and earth, okay? Then it finishes with God creating us. Here in Genesis 2, we start heavens and earth, this is the account, but then we find out we're in Eden, paradise. But then in Eden, God has actually made a special place for you and me, and it's called a garden. So it's heavens and earth, Eden, garden. And within that, so in that paradise, there's this garden. And not only are we, we find out about it, we find out we're placed in it for particular reasons. There's an intent why we're in the garden. Why are you and I in the garden instead of maybe on outside the garden? First, it's so that we have worship and intimacy with God. We're placed have intimacy with God. We find out later in Genesis 3, God's walking around in the cool of the evening. God wants to be with us in the garden. And then we're given the, the, the honor of representation in the garden. In the ancient Near East, kings would build gardens as homages to themselves. And the last thing they would put in these gardens were representations, idols of themselves that were supposed to bear their image. In the ancient Near East, millennium before, God has made, taken the heavens and the earth and Eden and a garden, and he's put something in there at the end to bear his image and to represent him. But then also not just to be represented like a statue. No, you and I are live beings and we're told to go and tend and make grow and make multiplication and be actively involved in the life of the garden, given a purpose. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Lastly, the last thing to note in this parallel account, because it'll matter in the next few chapters, is we're actually given a new name for God in this chapter. If you look at your Bibles, you can go home and open your Bible if you don't have one. Look at how they translate Genesis 1 and 2 and the way they do it. There'll be different names for God in Genesis 1 than in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, we're given a name for God over creation, Elohim. God's transcendent nature and character, creating by speaking and forming man and woman at the end of chapter 1. The name for God in chapter 2, this parallel account, is a combination of Elohim and Yahweh. It's God's name as the creator who makes a covenant with particular people to be with them. Do you, do you, that would preach all day long. Do you understand what the narrator, the writer of Moses is making sure you understand? Here's who God is, the God who we worship, that we worship and sing about this morning, that you belong to as a Christian. He's a creator transcendent over the world, but he's also the eminent Yahweh Committed to the covenant with you and I every day. Wanting to be with you and me in the garden. That's stunning news. That's going to matter next week. That name too. A little foreshadowing for you. Okay. Parallel accounts. That's a big picture. Now four specific things I want to highlight this morning. First, Genesis 1 and 2, but particularly let's look at 2, helps us figure out where we ask this question, where we start as Christians with the question about who am I? The fundamental questions of existence. And how do I see the world? And what it does here is kind of work in not sort of just a theological abstract again, but kind of a workshop. Where do you and I begin when we ask these questions? How do we build the skill we need to make it, again, pastorally in the world when it seems our immediate historical experience is denying the existence of God and our uniqueness as God's people? And you and I begin, like Genesis, with who God is. Who is God? The first question you ask and answer in your questions about yourself are who is God? And then you move from, wait, I'm created in the image of that God. And that God is Elohim. And that God is Elohim Yahweh. The more fancy way to say it is you and I are theomorphic. We're created in God's image. And we worship a God. First, theo. We're not anthropomorphic. And we don't make a God in our image, right? You're, it's going to be real clear. That's a no-no. Early on in the text, God's going to tell us, do not make something in my image to worship. No, you are created in my image. You don't worship each other. You worship God theomorphic. Who is God and what do I know about him? My understanding of myself begins with who God is. And I would encourage you to think about even this week, how you build that muscle. This is really important. It, what's one of the major things that set us, uh, sets us apart as people of Jesus and God and Yahweh and the Holy Spirit is we begin who understanding of ourselves with who is God. Think about the creeds, which we say each week. They do not begin, we believe in ourselves and our unique giftedness and how cool we are. No, we believe in one God, Father Almighty. It doesn't mean we're not created in the image of the Lord and all the other great things that are part of Genesis 1 and 2. But where we start in our understanding of ourselves as Christians is theomorphic. Who first is God? A few years ago, I had a good friend who was really wrestling with his faith. And he is still wrestling with his faith. And one of the clues to me that he was in a bad place was when you'd ask him, well, what's going on? How are you doing? He'd always start with who he was in his job. Well, I am a this. And it would go on and on from there. And I remember hearing that so many times and finally I just was like, man, you're just off the track. That's not where Christians start. Who is God? And how does God see me? And then I move into my understanding of myself. I've said this over and over again as I've preached here this prayer of St. Augustine. We ask God to help us understand and to know both who you are and who I am. Lord, help me know you and help me know myself. But we start first with God, like Genesis does. Second, then, who is this God? How does Genesis 2 help us build out just how big God is because he's big enough to not be encapsulated in chapter 1 or chapter 2 or the whole Bible? I want you to think for a second about from these two chapters in your eight weeks here, in these chapters, how would you describe God? Over lunch today, or tonight at dinner, or in small group this week, someone you, you take five minutes and say, This is what I have learned about who God is from Genesis 1 and 2. What would you say? Here's some of the things I would say. It strikes me again, as I've looked at these chapters this summer with you and for myself that God is fully about life. He's always about life, which is a lovely connection. To Jesus, who, of course, is the light and the life. God is about creating in different ways, above and within. Elohim, Yahweh. God is purposeful. God is tender. He sees that Adam has a need. And he actually invites him into understanding that need. He doesn't just say, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to solve that problem. It's actually quite, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to walk through, help him name the animals and help him realize for himself, come to his own self-understanding, know God, know yourself, that maybe I need something other than an elephant, a hippo or a giraffe as my best friend. In that sense, God is aware of holistically the whole picture of my well-being. And I see here in his skill set, he's a gardener. He's a landscape developer. He's a zookeeper. He's a delegator. Who is God? You see how great the Bible is. Who is God? I have a job. I'm a manager of people. I'm not good at delegating. I need to get better at that for my people to feel affirmed in who they are. I can ask the God who delegated Adam to work and me to work for help and how to delegate. Start with God. See what happens? Then, who are you here? Let's say you took a few minutes at lunch or a small group and you said, This is what I know about myself over the last eight weeks, and I didn't because I looked at Genesis 1 and 2. If you're a man here, how might you describe yourself in a way you might not have or have learned or been affirmed this last few weeks? Or you're a woman here, what are things you know about yourself? Here's some ways I would answer that I'm created which means I didn't just pop out of something from, with no sense of purpose. I've been commissioned. We'll talk more about that in a minute. I've been given others around me. I'm not just created. What's quite quite clear in the, in the Hebrew in Genesis 2 is I'm crafted. The word of God putting Adam and Eve together is like a, a potter, master artist crafting something. I'm I'm art. I might not look it. I'm old. Some of you probably saw in your bulletins that Johnny Kircinas still listed to preach and you might have thought, wow Johnny's looking rough today. <laughs> but I'm art. According to Genesis 2, you and I are art. God is a creator. He's an artist and he made you. Start with God, where do you end up? Women especially are art. Again, count the number of verses used to describe the creation of Eve compared to the creation of Adam. Eve is presented like a Van Gogh or a Rembrandt at the end. It's so wondrous that, for God to create this way that what does Adam do to be a part of it? Nothing. And he has to go to sleep. God, the craftsman, doesn't even want Adam to watch. As you keep reading, you'll see in the account of Abraham in Genesis 15, when God's going to do amazing things in Abraham, you know what's going to happen to Abraham? He's going to put Abraham to sleep too. And Eve is so amazing, that when Adam wakes up and he meets her as a bride, God presents her like the bride's father, Adam bursts into poetry. It's the first Symbol of poetry in the Bible. You're of by moan and flesh by flesh. But I mean, we haven't even really heard Adam speak. Now he's like writing songs. Again, what do we learn about ourselves? Yep. Third, then, in this crafting, you and I are given purpose and constraint. Purpose and constraint, both are very important. Again, this is Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament commentator I mentioned a few minutes ago. Brueggemann says, what are we all given? What are the three things that man and woman are all given that we see in the garden? We were given a vocation to care for and tend the garden. We're given a permit or permission. God says every tree is permitted, but then we're also given a prohibition, right? Every tree is given except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. a vocation, a permission, and a prohibition. So again, purpose and constraint. These are parts of a healthy, mature life, figuring out what are your purposes and what are your constraints. You're sent to do good work. Work, again, is a gift. So lots of things we could do and talk about that for weeks. Things like steward and tend and grow and help thrive and flourish. As several of you have probably, remember, you read a few years ago some Andy Crouch, and Andy Crouch says, you know, we're to make sense of the world, borrowing from the Mars Hill group in Charlottesville. Literal and figurative. We are, you and I are tasked to make sense of the world. Partnering with God, doing things like bringing order, helping beauty flourish, walking with others. Men and women have unique responsibilities, equal in dignity, equal in God's image, equal in value. You see men here... Adam is naming. This is a real authoritative responsibility. Growing to be able to bear that responsibility as a man is part of maturing as a man. What's it mean that I can bear the responsibility to to name things? One leadership scholar, a guy named Max Dupree, used to lead Herman Miller Furniture, has a book called Leadership as an Art, which came out about 30 years ago. And what he says in there is leaders define reality, which doesn't mean they take things that aren't true and make them true. What Miller is really borrowing from is Adam. Adam is looking at something and naming it to give it an authoritative responsibility. Because remember, the animals he's naming, he's been tasked with helping thrive. He's not naming to like curse them. He's naming to bless them. And then women are given purpose too. The word helper in the Hebrew here, the only other time that's used in the Bible is of God helping Israel. Men don't get that designation, but women do. So purpose, amazing purpose, crafted purpose. But then constraints. There were still constraints in the first chapter, right? Like the ocean's not the land and the night's not day. And men and women are clearly different. But these are new ones, right? Don't eat something. What God is really saying there is you are around something that that you are not able to handle or bear. You're in my, under the heavens, and Eden I've provided, and garden where I've placed you. You've been given permission and a purpose. This is here because God intends it for it to be here. One of the questions I think we probably all have for God is, Why is it there if you knew how dumb we could be with free will? But nevertheless, let's say there's 100 trees they can eat from, and there's one they can't. And rationally, we can go, just eat the 99. Come on, man. But there's still one. And God says, don't, because that knowledge of good and evil is more than you can bear. And again, we'll get to Genesis 3. But remember that. Because what happens to Adam and Eve is they suddenly are given way more than they can bear. And and the burden you and I might feel this morning living in a fallen world is because we're having and trying by God's help to bear more than we really can handle. So constraints, living in those constraints under the God who loves us and crafts us. The last thing I want to finish with is just to take us back again to what a beautiful world and situation this is. Because we've asked again lots and lots, what story are we in? You and I are in the story of creation. And yes, it'll be affected by the fall, but we still live in creation. My grass still grew this week in a fallen world, and I had to mow it. I can still go to the store down the street to Giant and get berries that sprouted this spring in a fallen world. There's a stunning array of colors on offer to you as you drive through neighborhoods today, and trees, and flowers, and kids, and puppies. Creation is amazing, and bountiful, and worth fighting for, and tending, and taking care of, to make sense of the world. So my my gentle encouragement this week, as we finish these two chapters, pre-fall, is to think about what would it mean for me to really savor God's good creation this week? Maybe maybe for you it's being outside. I bet for a lot of us it is. Maybe you want to watch the sun go down or come up and give the Lord thanks for night and day and that constraint and order and beauty. Maybe there's something you love to eat and it's summer. You love watermelon. You know you can't get good seedless watermelon except in the summer, and so you're going to eat a watermelon a day in your house. Kids, you can go home and tell mom and dad. Church said I have to eat a watermelon a day. Because you and I still live under creation. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. God's bounty is so good. That he, it can't help but burst forth in the world we live in. And you and I are to, to not only tend it, but to bear witness to its goodness, to represent God's goodness in the world. That would be my encouragement this week. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the wonder, the layered wisdom of these chapters that give us so much to consider and ponder and to be uh, shaped by. I pray that everyone here would again know that they are crafted and their dignity. This week, it's predictable that that dignity will be buffeted. We might have people question that dignity or attack that dignity, or we might do something where we feel like a failure or we're afraid to come to you. Lord, help us own your love and be guided by it. And help us savor your creation to taste and see that the Lord is good this week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.